Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Most five will begin reading in verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies, though ye offer me burnt offerings, and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters, as righteousness, as a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices of offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But you have borne the tabernacle of your Mola and Chaun, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. We start our passage today again with very, very strong words. In fact, the two words that he says that Jesus starts out this portion of scripture today is, I hate and I despise. And so I know there will be some that look at that and say, wait a minute, I thought that God was love, and he is. But God is righteous indignation and fury, and God lets us know. I mean, if we stop and think of this theologically speaking, we have to realize on a theological level, and I try to bring us all to those levels, to the loftiness at times, and the Bible does this very well. But if we think of God himself in a theological manner, you do realize that God doesn't think. What he is doing in his word is he is condescending into a human thinking level so that we can start to comprehend divinity. If you want to say about our God and his greatness and his majesty and fullness, he doesn't think. He just knows. If you were to accuse him of thinking, it would be blasphemy. Because that would entail that he doesn't know the end of his thought. Therefore, the process of thinking would have to occur. But our God is all-knowing. Therefore, he doesn't think. He just knows. Fearsome he is. A terror he is, yet loving and compassionate shepherd he is. In these verses here, he starts out in verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast days, I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Today's message is entitled, Past the Point of No Return. Strong words again. But desperate times call for desperate words. Because the object here that we are discussing in all of the book of Amos is the nation is going beyond the point of no return. And you do realize that there have been a lot of nations through history that are no longer because they went past the point of no return. 
And so what I'd like to do is throw your ribbon in here and we'll come back to our text, but I want to just look at that for a moment in Romans chapter 1 and how that happens because what we need to be knowledgeable on the wiles of the devil, the plan of God, and historical senses. He explains it, Paul explains it in Romans chapter 1, and he, he says that all creation knows uh, about God. There is no such thing as an atheist. There are only liars. But he's explaining this to them in a very unique way in Romans chapter 1. He says in verse 20, This is true because the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. In other words, not only do they know that God exists, but they know of a triune Godhead so that they are without excuse. And so Paul is making the argument here that just natural revelation itself, the creation testifies of his glory and his majesty. And then he says that they are without excuse. But then he goes on to explain how things fall apart. And it goes down very, very low. Our country is stooping very, very low. And so we are coming, except the revival breakout, we will eventually be one of those countries that used to be. And he tells us why in verse 21. He says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. They didn't glorify him as God. Paul is telling of the importance of public discourse, that in the public realm, we must glorify him. And they did not do that. They didn't bring him glory and fame in the public discourse. In the New Testament, when Jesus was doing his ministry, the people, it says, the Bible says that they blazed it abroad. Jesus did his ministry in public. He did it on the seashore. He did it in the city. He did it in the gate. He did it all over. Jesus wasn't confined to the temple. That's why the idea of the separation of church and state is from the pit. That's not supposed to be that way. That is from the devil himself. We are inclined to speak and to glorify him in a public discourse. And we will do that, no matter what. If you do that, though, we are told already in Amos that he who rebukes in the gate, they will hate you. But they glorified him not as God, and they neither they weren't thankful. They became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You can see it's going down. They used to know... And now they don't because they didn't glorify him as God, the people, the nation, the unit. Now we realize that it's not talking of individuals. It's talking of nations. It's a national way because you can live a rotten, sinful life your entire life. And your very last breath could be, forgive me, Lord. And he will turn none away. The thief on the cross. So he's referring nationally here. He says that their foolish heart was dark and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The higher education was very important to them, more so than biblical education. And then it led to changing the glory of the uncorruptible God into images made like unto corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. Now look what happens then. Wherefore, God also gave them up. That is astounding. 
That is horrible. They have gone past the point, or I should say are going past the point at this stage. They are going past the point of no return. God gave them up. And look what happens. He gives them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who changed the truth of God into a lie, worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. And then again he says it. For this cause, God gave them up. So what you're seeing is an incremental, spiritual spiral falling away, and it begins to grow in an exponential way. It turns into a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more, and then an avalanche falls. He begins to give them up, and then it gets worse, obviously, because God is giving up in His grace. And if we're left on our own in our depravity, we will always choose wrong. Always. If it weren't for God, we would always choose wrong. So when he gives them up, verse 26, for this cause then, we see it again, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error which was meat. They do it to themselves, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, because they still have that there, again then, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. They went past the point of no return. Hence the flood. Hence the coming day of the Lord. So when we look at that, we can come to Amos and see what he is saying. Somewhat, because he starts out this part after he talks about the day of the Lord coming because the lack of righteousness that is in public discourse. So he's following his own plan there in Romans. They won't establish righteousness in the gate. Therefore, the day of the Lord will come. And then after the parenthetical of the horror that God is using to try to shake them straight, then he tells them with strong words, I hate I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings. That's a very strange thing because these are church events. These are church activities. The church activities are continuing. They are going. They are happening. But God says this stuff makes me, and actually in Revelation, spew you out of my mouth. But the theological aspect of this is even more because the burnt offerings and the meat offerings, all the offerings that he is talking about, the peace offerings, are what we know of as propitiation. You do know the definition of a propitiation because you attend Liberty Valley Church, so I don't have to explain that to you. And so I already see somebody pulling it up on their phone to Google it. Propitiation, how do you spell that? I don't know. (laughs) Spell check, darn it. (laughs) Propitiation means that the wrath of God has been soothed. 
the atonement. They have made atonement for their sins. The wrath of God has been soothed. The appeasement of his wrath. He poured out his wrath upon Jesus Christ. The full fury of the Almighty and his majesty, power, and glory was poured out on Jesus Christ. And the propitiation that took place, his wrath was comforted. We deserve wrath. So this is very odd then. Because he says, I will not, I will not accept propitiation from you. I will not accept it. I will not accept the church functions. I will not accept the offerings. Because there is a point of no return. Now you can also say with this, with the words of Isaiah, it's because these people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So he says, look, 23, Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. Were they playing the wrong songs? Were they playing the songs wrong? Maybe God only likes old hymns. He doesn't like contemporary music. He certainly doesn't like the music on the fish. No, that's not it. Although I'm not convinced that he don't, but that's not what he's saying here. He, he doesn't like how they're being sung from their heart. Here's a parenthetical, and again, don't send me emails. I, I was going to, during the song of A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, I was going to cut the women out because I, will, I want to know what the temperature of our church is. Because the temperature of our church, a perfect way to find out is to see if the men sing. Because the men's heart is the army. It's the battalion. Now our women are very lively here, so we left it go. You know, Deborah, we have a lot of them. So he, he is saying here, I don't even want to hear your songs. The propitiation is out the window. The atonement is not working. The offerings are, I don't, I don't even like the smell. They are a stench in my nostrils. Your songs, he calls them and describes them as noise. For I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But, but he says, let judgment run down as waters, as righteousness, as mighty stream. And immediately our mind goes to John chapter 4. The woman at the well. Lord, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw. Jesus stops and says, Woman, if thou knewest who it was that stood before you and the gift of God, thou would have asked him and he would give you living water. A well of water that springs up from within. You see, because we can't conjure up this stuff. This is the work of God in our heart. It's grace that we do sing. It's grace it's all grace. If it weren't for grace, we would not even know a single hymn, let alone sing it. It has to be genuine. It has to be natural. It has to flow from within. Otherwise, we're, we're just entertaining ourselves. They couldn't do it. Then he asks a, a question that has boggled commentators and scholars. The next few verses of the remaining of the chapter, people disagree on. 
And I know that the Lord knows how to clearly speak, so he's done this on purpose. But he asks a very odd question. So, look, he says, Have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? All right, so our mind is transferred back to Moses and the wilderness wanderings. Amos is taking us back there. He asked the question, have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness? So then your mind goes to, wait a minute, let's go back there. Uh, all of our reading, let the Spirit bring it to our attention. And uh, the answer would be, kind of. Kind of. They wandered around the desert for 40 years with the tent of meeting, and there were some offerings that Moses and Aaron and the boys sacrificed, but we do know that they didn't do the sacrifice of the Passover, and which is a key one, don't you think? They didn't until they got back to the promised land because uh, they had to actually relearn how to do that one. That's why it's so important that we teach and preach the whole counsel of God. I, I don't want to tickle your ears. We have to go through. I even thought, my gosh, I'm not sure the people can, can make it through Amos. It's, I mean, we got like half the book left to go. <laughs> there won't be anybody left by the time we're done. <laughs> Have you offered under me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? Well, they, they kind of did, and it was kind of, but, but what do we know about them? What do we know about the people who were doing offerings in the wilderness? None of them made it. None of the generation that wandered around, except for Joshua and Caleb, none of them made it to the promised land. Why? Because they went past the point of no return. But you have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and your Chayun, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Are we looking at Moses' day here? Or are we looking at Amos' day here? Because we know that that cause, he's, he's referring to stuff that has taken place also in the days of Moses, likely maybe also in the day of Amos. Because he says straight up, Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord whose name is the God of hosts. And we know, so what God is saying is, is because of A, B, and C, you are going to go into captivity. The Assyrians are going to invade you, and the Babylonians will invade you and take you captivity out of your land. So it's a very odd portion of Scripture. That's why commentators don't really know. The interesting part, though, that I find is that that same questionable passage you find in the book of Acts. So let's go there and let the Bible teach the Bible. Look over in Acts chapter 2, and you'll find that there's a, there is this parallel in the book of Acts with the book of Amos. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost is coming. They're here. This feast that was celebrated all the way back into Amos' day, or around there. This day, a, a feast, uh, a church function. They're all coming there. We're, we're familiar with it. The, the Holy Spirit comes down, and they start speaking with tongues and all kinds of things that the Spirit gave them utterance. Then in verse 5, look at what's happening here. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews 
devout men out of every nation under heaven. That is a huge statement. Israel, Jerusalem specifically, is so crowded. I mean, that's why when Jesus was born, there was no room in the inn, because the festivals would bring people from all over the world. The Jews would all come back to the homeland, and then there would be such this crowd. But what is being specified here is not only all the average Jews, the millions of them, but Devout men, actually. Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. They are swarming all for this particular time. Why? We had this Jesus of Nazareth that was blazed abroad. Curious they are. Because it was blazed abroad. Was that message received? No. They crucified him. But the message is still lingering. And so now the aftermath is encountering. It's occurring. All these devout men from all nations, from all over heaven, are here. And there's a reason for it. Verse 6, Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Very derogatory statement. They're Galileans. Well, then how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Now look at this list. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the dwellers of Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and Cappadocia, in Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in parts of Libya, and Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. It's, it's such an extensive list of these devout men of every nation under heaven. It's way bigger than even normal. So then we know what happens, don't we? Peter stands up and he, he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. These people aren't drunk with wine because of tongues. That's, that's only the third day. We don't usually start sipping our hooch until the fourth hour of the day. So it can't be that. So what's happening here actually is, is that what's being fulfilled is the prophecy of Joel. Didn't we just look at Joel last week when the context was the day of the Lord? Yes, we did. So we're already beginning the parallels here. And actually, what Joel is saying and what Peter is preaching is actually exactly that. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 20, he actually refers to that. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Let me tell you, Peter is expecting the whole prophecy of Joel to be fulfilled. Because we know at that time, the sun didn't turn to blood. But he's expecting it to happen. The Jewish calendar, he thought was clicking on. Right after Pentecost should have come the day of the Lord. Should have. Okay, now notice again, verse 22. Who's he talking to? Who is he addressing? You men of Israel. Go to his second sermon down in chapter 3 and 12, Acts 3.12. Again, who is he addressing? When Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel. Who is he addressing? Ye men of Israel. 
Go over to chapter 5 and verse 25. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Who are they addressing? Because you don't address anybody really in the temple other than Jews. Unless you're in the Gentile court. But for the most part, it's packed full because of the enormity of the crowds. So the men get out of jail, they're right back to the temple, and they're addressing Jews. Go over to 6.12. It says, And they stirred up the people and came to the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him now to the council. Now we're, we're getting somewhere because Stephen the good deacon is full of faith and power and did wonders and miracles. The Lord is blessing the deacon in a very, very special way that is very unique. Now remember at this time, deacons were, were to serve tables and food and take care of troubles of the church, take care of murmurers, which, you know, that happens. But this is very different because this deacon is going to preach a sermon that is filled with the Spirit and, and in a marvelous way. But notice who he's doing it to, a very authoritative council. The devout men, the Sanhedrin plus, elders, rabbis, scribes, everybody is here in Jerusalem. And in fact, we know one particular student of Gamaliel named Saul is also present. They brought them to the council, and it says in 13, and they set up false witnesses which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now, the high priest, the one of authority, the high priest, asks the question, are these things so? Then in two, he stands up, and who does he address? Men, brethren, and fathers. He's addressing the Jews in an authoritative way. And all of the authorities of the Jews all over the world, every one of them is here for this very purpose. Look in verse 41. We're in the middle of his sermon. He's giving a, a historical account of all the days. He starts in Abraham and he makes his way all the way through this, this marvelous preaching of the deacons, spirit-filled preaching. Right around mid-sermon, he says something awfully interesting. He's again, he's referring to the days of Moses, I think. We're not 100% sure, just like we're not 100% sure in the times of Amos. But look what he says in 41. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them He gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Which prophet? Amos. That book, you know, that no one reads, that when you go to find it, the pages all stick together and dust comes flying out. He gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. O you house of Israel, have you offered... To me, slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? 
Again, none of that generation made it. In fact, 43, yea, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephem, figures which you made to worship them, and I will carry you away to Babylon. Hmm. He's referring to a time that is past the point of no return. We know what happened, don't we? They killed him for it. They stoned him. They brought him out. They took blocks and stones. They crushed his skull till the point of death. They stoned him to death. Look what happens after that. Chapter 8. Who is the big center of attention in chapter 8? Philip the deacon goes and by the Spirit is taken to an Ethiopian, a Gentile. Look at chapter 9. We have a conversion of that Saul who becomes the apostle to the who? The Gentiles. If you go to chapter 10, who's the center of attention here? Cornelius. Who is what? The Gentile. What's happening here? Follow through the book of Acts and you will find Jews, 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 Jews till, the, till Stephen and the rejection of his sermon. And then after that following, it goes Gentile, Gentile, Gentile. Paul says even an apostle born out of due time, an apostle to the Gentiles. What has happened? For three transgressions and for four a fire. They have come to the place of no return. They have rejected the final offering of the kingdom. But the interesting part, and you've got to realize it, that was 2,000 years ago. And the Jew, as a, the nation of Israel, is still in unbelief because of what happened here. They rejected their own Messiah. And then graciously, God offers to them still the kingdom through the preaching of a deacon. You still can repent and turn, even though you killed heaven's darling. I will still offer you the kingdom. And then they reject even that because three transgressions and for four, you can only go so far. And they went past. And for 2,000 years, the nation of Israel is still in unbelief. But the most marvelous, marvelous point of this is Paul the Apostle will eventually ask a question. Has God set aside his people Israel? God forbid. Because the covenants will stand. God is a covenant-keeping God. And even despite us, despite even going past the point of no return, they will be grafted back in and they will receive the promises and the covenants and the glory and the prayer of Jesus Christ, thy kingdom come, will be answered. It is grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And with what do we have to boast? We are but dust. Could there be someone here still dead in their sins? Why would you not accept? Repent and believe.
How gracious can he be? been listening to Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.